0: Sandy what's going on how are you enjoying your time in Ontario
1: (laughs) it's great I am in a closet right now and so for all of you budding podcasters out there and I know there's a lot of folks trying to start new projects and wondering how to do it I gotta say a kitchen chair inside a closet is really really comfortable
0: (laughs) that doesn't sound comfortable (laughs)
1: really comfortable
0: it doesn't sound comfortable.
1: I could not be more. I could not be more. I got. I got a pillow on my lap for my microphone. I have a dress shirt pocket that's hanging up and holding my cell phone, which is how I'm talking to you. I have another pillow beside me. I got a water bottle. I am so set up. You can't even tell that it was like 30 fucking eight degrees today.
0: Wow. It was 38 degrees today. <laughs> Holy shit.
1: I don't know. It felt like it. It felt it it was it was not not comfortable. So I can all I can say is right now I'm like the most comfortable that I've been all day, which is nice.
0: I am the least comfortable I have been all year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this might be too much information for the for the listeners, but I don't care. I so I have shingles. I got shingles. I got diagnosed with shingles last week. And all I can say is for the kids of today who have the ability to get the chicken pox vaccine, get that fucking vaccine because (laughs) shingles is not the business. It is some of the most painful shit I have ever experienced. Um, And I'm really having difficulty wearing a shirt right now. But here we are.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. We should feel so honored that you are pushing through to just keep going on the podcast despite your pain
0: I am and I have warned Nora as I warn the listeners that there there could be a a cry out in pain which has been happening um this whole week it's it's the pain is so intense that yes I will just uh cry out in pain on my own uh so again don't get shingles. Um, that's my recommend- general recommendation for everyone listening. Don't get shingles. Um, if you uh, are in charge of a child who can get the chicken pox vaccine, get that vaccine. And if you are about to be 50 and eligible to get the shingles vaccine, after having had chickenpox, go get that vaccine too. In fact, get all the vaccines. Yeah. <laughs> That's my message for you today. Yeah.
1: Just collect them, actually. Get a bingo card. Well, I guess it's your vaccine notebook if you have one. Just fill it all out.
0: <laughs> yeah, that ugly yellow notebook. Um, but yeah, let's focus on things that we should be grateful for, shall we? Um, we have a few people to thank this week, yeah?
1: Yes, we totally do. Uh, This week, I have got to say so much thank you to the folks that became um, Patreons for the first time or who modified their pledges. And just a reminder, if you want to get access to an ad-free feed, you can get that through the Patreon. Um, We were not good at uploading that this week, so I'm really, really sorry. Um, But that's more of a holiday uh, problem, which don't worry everyone, my holiday is almost over. (laughs) And so um, this week, we have to thank... Jessa, Kim, Josh, and Caitlin. Thank you so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it.
0: So have you been paying attention to the big election news this week, Nora? Uh,
1: um. Well, so here's the thing. I'm When I go home, I get the um, pleasure of reading newspapers in print. I actually get to read the daily newspapers and I sit down and have a coffee and try to... This is literally how I relax, everybody. It's really sad, but this is what I do. And it's really shocking how few journalists are writing about anything, like are writing about uh, the election. Like how few journalists are actually on the electric on the election beat. That you're often seeing the same byline covering two different politicians or two different campaigns or even three sometimes. And I was just so annoyed that the Toronto Star had a, a feature of of the of four of the federal leaders, and three of them. Uh, the, the feature on O'Toole, the feature on Singh, and the feature on Paul were written by journalists. And the feature on Trudeau was written by Susan Delacourt, who is a columnist. Oh, which was, I thought, very interesting. Because Delacorte has, like, sh- you know, she's a liberal. And in one of her columns, I think the day before, so this is like Friday of last week, um, she was trying to make Trudeau into the underdog. Like, he's, like, got so much he's got these struggles that he's got to he's got to get past this he's got to get past that and then she like admits he's
0: Trudeau an underdog well then and
1: then she and then she says and he excels at being an underdog so it's like so you've spent your column creating the image of an underdog and then you say he excels at, at being an underdog and now I'm reading a profile on you that has no quotations you didn't do any interviews with anybody like the other three pieces and I'm supposed to read these pieces like as if they're all the same like are you kidding me it's it, it it just is like it's a good dipping my toes into a world that I'm not really in. I'm not reading daily English newspapers at all, and it's like really fucking bleak.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know what's really weird is I before we hopped on today, I just thought let me just go see what's on the front page. Like if I pull up the Toronto Star and if I pull up CBC, uh, what what the first things that they're talking about are with respect to the election. I, I don't know if it it counts as like you know you know when you when you open up something on your phone or on your laptop like uh, above the fold I guess like the equivalent of above the fold of what you first <laughs> see. No right. one's talking about the election.
1: <laughs> really?
0: <laughs> yeah. the t- The front page of the Toronto Star: Afghanistan, 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 Taliban, KFC, camp. Of course, summer camp. Yeah. Uh, hit and run, lights, camera, movie posters. Don't know what that's about. <laughs> ice cream, premium ice cream. Coronavirus. And at this point, I've started to scroll. So that's below. That we've now gotten to below the fold and nothing on elections. CBC is a slightly different. CBC is here's what the main federal parties are promising seniors. Oh, then Afghanistan. Black Québécois, NHL sends condolences to BC community. Grizzly territories in BC line up with indigenous language communities, new studies suggest. I I just, it's like an election isn't happening. Mm. Very weird. Well, it's like
1: all of the um, media line that we've been hearing that no one wants an election. It's like...
0: They don't want an election. (laughs) and (laughs) Well, they certainly don't seem to want to cover it.
1: Right. And why would they? Because it's the summer and, like, everyone's on vacation. So basically, as I just (laughs) said, one person is writing all the
0: stories. (laughs) That is uh, very true. August is... um... Uh, journalism is away month and well, I guess most Mm -hmm. industries are away month, um, which is uh, shitty for all of us. There is a little bit of news that came out today, I guess, um, that Erin O'Toole is interested in privatizing parts of the healthcare system after the pandemic experience, um, which I think most of our listeners can see through that bullshit. But I guess we'll wait to see what actually comes out in the platform to see what that plan will look like. Who? the conservative friends are that are going to um, be benefiting from whatever promises they make, even though they have no hope in hell mm-hmm. of actually forming govern- government.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, actually they probably have a hope in hell, <laughs> but true. <laughs> um, I-, I wanted to mention this columnist thing because, um, because our topic today um, is going to bring in this world of columnists and journalists and, um, As part of how Canada, Canadians have for the last 20 years and, you know, the last week interacted with what topic, the the topic of today's story. Um, So back in 2001, when Canada uh, marched, well, 2001, back in 2002, 2003, Canada's marching towards war in Afghanistan How many major newspapers, Sandy, do you think were opposed to us going to war in Afghanistan?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going through them in my head. And I'm going to say, is the answer none?
1: (laughs) I am not aware of a single newspaper that was saying at the time we should not be in Afghanistan. And that is tonight's topic. Um, Just like how the coverage has unfolded in Canada, uh, what the fuck is going on? And uh, like, which we talk about evacuations and this kind of thing, and and just how little accounting for there has been about our role in that part of the world, our war, our (laughs) our role in the in the occupation in this imperialist pursuit that has just ravaged the country for the last 20 years and has come to an end abruptly uh, and apparently with very little planning and foresight that has left a lot of people in, like, to say the least, in the lurch.
0: Yeah, I think that this is really, really critical for us to speak about for a few reasons. One is that, OK, you you heard me just read off those stories, those headlines um, in the CBC and the Toronto Star. Both of them are talking about Afghanistan and the end of the U.S. military. Um, I mean, <laughs> I hesitate to to use a particular word to describe it, but I mean, it's kind of like it was a, a, an imperial exercise, but it was also a colonial exercise. So um, the end to the the pullout of the U.S. colony, like I don't I don't really know how to. Um, what, the, what the right political way is to, to discuss what the U.S. is calling an end to their, like, their military operations um, in Afghanistan. Um, all of those stories that were mentioned could have been talked about in the context of an election where um, some of the very people who were running had a hand in um, uh, us being in Afghanistan and what happened in Afghanistan while Canadian troops were there. And another reason why I think it's so important is it's, you know, uh, it's related to one of the flagship promises of the Liberal Party of Canada, when they say, when they're trying to again use Afghanistan in a way to make their own identity, their own, um, uh, their own morals kind of created on the backs of Afghan people by saying, we're going to take in Twenty thousand Afghan refugees. Not referencing or not talking about how those refugees were created by us, how we're complicit in the in the creation of uh, of a situation where those those refugees come to be, um, and not talking about how how ridiculous that twenty thousand people, like how many lives did we impact by being there? It's it is turning what I'm sure whoever came up with the messaging for this knew could be a really terrible, terrible story for the Liberal Party and trying to turn it on its head into something positive. And, you know, just going through those, um, through those headlines, it, it's just, it seems like such a no-brainer to me that um, feet should be held to the mm-hmm. fire on uh, making a promise like that, given the history that we have in that country.
1: Yeah, so let's let's back up and 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 go back to two thousand and one, two thousand and two. That was a pretty like for me. I was a teenager and I was watching all of this uh, as a teenager who had just decided that I'd be going into journalism. It was right when I was finishing high school and I was going to go study journalism. And w- there was a couple of things that I, I that really really stayed with me um one was i so i grew up in a in a small town that um, had a lot of um, immigrants from holland who came to canada after world war ii and because of that every year and because i was involved in choirs and stuff every single year for remembrance day um it was a big deal because it was really underpinned by the dutch community talking about being liberated by canada and what nazi occupation was like and you know a lot of um discussions about peace and never forgetting and all this this kind of stuff that you would imagine was part of remembrance day and then 2002 happens and it's the first remembrance day of my life where we have active an active role to play in another country in our in our in Canadian well, I mean of course, Canadian soldiers were, were deployed in other places, but not not in the way that we ended up being deployed in Afghanistan. And I remember the, the tone of the ceremonies that year completely changed. And all of a sudden we were being ushered towards cheering for uh, and supporting the troops rather than having a commemoration that looked at why we have to never again agree to enter into war at the same time. The, the 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 Canadian uh, not just media establishment but like kind of like our the sum total of cultural production was focused on saving Afghan women and girls and and this was such a powerful message it was the the way in which the canadian government and canadian media sold canada's involvement in afghanistan which was we have to be there to save these women and girls and then there's tons of horrific stories of uh of abuses and of oppression and, and and whatever i mean a lot of obviously a lot of our listeners will know will know that um and and it was so fascinating because that was actually the first time that i had really thought of feminism and i understood feminism in canada as being a tool that was being used to convince people to go to war, <laughs> which yeah. is so funny. I mean, this helps to kind of explain my my political foundations or whatever. And, um, and with that, Canada goes to war. And, you know, it wasn't as if there was no opposition, um, and certainly opposition in the United States, like anybody who was openly opposed to um, or, or questioned the United States role in Afghanistan, like the Dixie Chicks and even that shithead Bill Maher, um, you know, lost their careers uh, in in a lot of cases, or, or at least had their careers, like, hurt. In, in Canada, there was a lot less criticism that was mainstream outside of the anti-war movements.
0: Yeah, I, I remember that time as well, being a teenager, um, just about to, well, I wasn't just about to leave high school. I was smack dab in the middle of high school, and it was, like, the very first major protest that I attended um, was uh, that big protest that happened um, oh, wait, am I mixing things up? Was that just before the war in Iraq? I, you
1: know what? I, I, I also can never keep track of the two <laughs> wars, but you're talking about F-15, right? February 15, 2002?
0: Yeah, yes, yes. I can't remember. You know what? The thing is, it was meant uh, to confuse us <laughs> in that way. You know, the, the relationship between the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq and the U.S. military um, goals in the Middle East And Canada doing whatever the U.S. wanted. um, All of that was meant to confuse us because part of what was happening here was that they were using this, um, you know, this war on drugs rhetoric repurposed to the war on terrorism rhetoric to create a new kind of justification for hatred and open hatred against Muslim people or... Brown people who looked a little different didn't just have to be Muslim people. They just needed to, to be understood or misunderstood as uh, Muslim people. There's it, This time period, 2001 to 2003, when these two wars were launched, created the foundation for really disgusting, uh, is, uh, justifiable Islamophobia in the West, which, I mean, I don't need to remind you. Um, as we sit here today, how horrific that has been in Canada, uh, in particular, to, to uh, families and communities across Canada, what they've had to endure. And as we look back right now at this time where everything um, seems to be just so devastating and so atrocious and so uncaring on the part of uh, the U.S. government, you know, I What was it for? What was it for? We were told it was for women and girls. We were told it was for, uh, quote unquote, the end of terror. What was it actually for? Do you know how much it cost Canada, Nora? No, I don't. $18 billion. What? No. The war in Afghanistan uh, that over a decade that we were involved in from 2001 to 2014, the estimate is $18 billion.
1: Wow. Wow. And and it's so like going back to that question of confusion um, and, and it's, you know, partly I was confused because I was a kid. Right. I was I was paying attention to the news and I and I remember um, this. It felt like it was a, a victory that Canada did not agree to war in Iraq, but we were full on in the war in Afghanistan. And I remember um, uh, Jean Chrétien, the prime minister, of course, at the time being so Uh, in favor of needing Canada to be there. But what what really sticks with me from that time was that was the first time that Canada had embedded journalists in the way that they had. So journalists were literally wearing flak jackets and alongside soldiers. And that started to cover, that started to colour the coverage in such a profound way that we have never, ever reckoned with in this country, that you have photographers, you have journalists who are shot down in in helicopters, like journalists I know who are shot, shot down in helicopters or who witnessed... Um, i don 't know crimes or horrors or whatever and 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 these journalists they 're embedded, and so they start you know writing from the perspective of the soldiers and so you get a one kind of war reporting, a modern kind of war reporting where it's it 's like there 's just not 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 only is there no room for critical reporting, but the literal eyes on the ground are are their lives depend on the soldiers around them to keep them safe. And that was the foundation of how Canada learned about what was happening in Afghanistan from the from the eyes, the ears, the pens, the computers of these journalists. And you know, 20 years later, media has completely changed. We've lost so many jobs. The internet obviously has taken a a, a, a major role in how in how media is disseminated and and, and produced. And and still and so now we have very, very few journalists that are writing about Afghanistan except for journalists that seem to have either been embedded at you know back twenty years ago and there's I can name a couple of people who like, you know, in the last couple of weeks have been talking about their time in Afghanistan. Or people who did not spend time in Afghanistan but who have very strong connections to the Canadian military and whose journalism is like very frequently based on inside scoops or inside knowledge or whatever. And so there's literally no fucking coverage at all that isn't interested in absolutely maintaining this, this, this lie about what we were doing there and what was happening there, which makes understanding what's going on there right now really really hard and like the the most critical thing that you'll see are voices from veterans who are completely forgotten or left behind you know there's my a friend of mine bruce moncore he wrote something uh recently about having uh you know survived uh, an attack when he was uh, deployed in afghanistan um and, and these kinds of voices like they're really important but that's not journalism necessarily that's not journalism at all it's not standing in for uh, trying to p- parse through the facts and it's like what is happening and the the biggest question that I have why if we left in 2014 have we not given paths to immigration to people who would be put in harm's way for whatever help they gave Canadians when Canada was involved in Afghanistan
0: mm-hmm. that should be a major question. Um, you know, I, I have heard very little in this last week where everybody is talking about um, the the role um, that uh, the U.S. mainly p- played in Afghanistan. Um, I haven't heard a lot of, uh, of discussion about how many civilians were harmed in Afghanistan. And that should be um, at the fore of many of our uh, political conversations, because human cost um, is, of course... Uh, it should be a huge part of the driver of any sort of conversation of moving forward, um, whether that's accepting refugees um, or uh, you know past immigration as you suggest or whatever uh, but you know it's over seventy thousand people seventy thousand civilians civilians okay civilians were 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 killed estimated seventy thousand people that is like on a scale that I, I can't even, you know, understand in my head, you know, the 70,000 civilians uh, murdered in this war that I don't know why we were there. Like, what was the reason? What was the reason? And why have we not had a good uh, political discussion about why we were there in the first place and what we were doing besides, uh, I don't know, being America? I, it doesn't make any sense to me that we haven't had this conversation and that it wouldn't come up in the context of the election that's happening right now. It should. We need to ask ourselves, what is, what is Canada's role going to be the next time that the U S decides that it has, um, some Imperial colonial, uh, um, work to do in some other country. What is our role going to be? Are we going to play the same role that we just did? Um, are we going to, uh, participate in propaganda that says that this is about women and girls? Um, you know, like Justin Trudeau did, uh, when, when Trump said that he was interested in providing a path, what was it, a pathway for women and girls to be CEOs or something like that? And and Trudeau was like, (laughs) cool, I'm in on it. I'm the feminist prime minister. Like these, these things are connected, like these, these moments of how, uh, rhetoric is used to, um. To to use women as propaganda, to use Islamophobia as prop- propaganda, and and then becomes foreign policy that turns into eighteen billion dollars gone that could have paid for all sorts of things that we struggle with in this country on a regular basis. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and and trying to understand then now, I mean, there's a lot of of necessity to understand what has happened. But, you know, we are facing a a federal election. Um, Canada did not go to Iraq. But where do we currently have soldiers deployed, as we mentioned last week? Oh, we have soldiers deployed in Iraq. And one of the things that they have um, that, that has recently come out is that they're training people. They're training security forces in the way that they were involved in training, I guess, security forces in Afghanistan. They're training security forces in Iraq. And um, information has come out in the past couple of years that the that Canadian soldiers uh, and, and the chain of command is aware that some of the people that they're training in Iraq are then going on to commit war crimes. And the Canadian military command is like, okay, well, I mean, there's not a whole lot we can do. Uh, and And the way that they've found out that uh, some people that have been trained by the Canadian military are going on to commit war crimes and war crimes like just horrific abuses to other people um ha- has been through video evidence as they're seeing videos of people that the Canadian soldiers are training are now committing war crimes um and this made a very minor media splash a couple of months ago um and and has not I've not seen it at all picked up since the last time I maybe saw something six months ago or eight months ago. While at the same time, the military has this crisis of uh, sexual assault uh, plaguing its leadership. Of course, this past week, uh, Danny Fortin, who was hired to oversee the fucking distribution of vaccines, um, is now being charged for a sexual uh, assault alleged um, that he committed in 1988. Um, and he's just one of, of, uh, of like several Senior, uh, senior-ranking officers in the Canadian uh, Armed Forces who are facing sexual assault allegations, and then I, I just I wrote a piece a, a couple of months ago of, of uh, of someone who experienced sexual assaults uh, on on a, on, a, on a Canadian Forces base as a child. But as a child, they're a civilian, and therefore, as a civilian, they don't have the same protections as uh, as a military uh, personnel would have. Even though a child is like completely at the whim of the military because they're there with their their parents, right? And so, you know, these these stories, they come up, they, they're they written on by the very few military journalists that exist in this country. All of those journalists either, as I said already, were have been embedded uh, alongside uh, soldiers or have a lot of inside information, but, uh, you know, on the balance of everything, they're very pro-military, right? They're not writing from a perspective of these people shouldn't even exist. And that leaves Canadians with, like, the most confused and fucked up picture of what is the Canadian armed forces. What are they doing currently? Have we ever approved it? I mean, there's so little discussion about how we spend $2 billion every year for the quote unquote mission in Iraq and Syria. And then of course we've got, you know, soldiers in other parts of the world. And why do we lo- know so little? Like what, why, why is there such a reluctance to make this issue into like a, a key or a primary issue, considering the images and the global attention that we're seeing uh, right now on the country? Let me see if I can blow
0: some of our listeners' minds with this bit of information, Um, which, you know, when I found out about this this week, I was like, why didn't I know that? Why didn't I know that? As you say, information um, about these uh, foreign military operations is such a you know, it's 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 so lacking in Canada. I mean, gosh, it's it's so frustrating. But Nora, did you know that the RCMP was also in Afghanistan?
1: Uh, no, no, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, uh, the RCMP was was part of the mission, I suppose. <laughs> um, and they their their role was to help train um, police. Uh, in Afghanistan and security forces, so don't know where, where that falls under, uh, but to train people in policing
1: that that seems that seems like um, a recipe for fuckery to say like the absolute least.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know I've uh, over the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of reading about uh, policing and how much uh, policing, Uh, Part of the reason why we see the same issues with policing everywhere is because it is all, like, trained from the same place. (laughs) It's, like, very much uh, the uh, American uh, policing has been exported around the world, um, uh, including in Canada. I would, uh, uh, you know... Count Canadian policing as the same, like it's all, it all comes from the same sort of philosophy. And uh, part of the role of uh, the military operation for both the US and Canada was to train um, state police. Right and to create, to create a modernized policing for, uh, for Afghanistan, which, you know, as we know, we have all of these issues of our own with like, what in the fuck, what, why are we going over to colonize someone else's idea of uh, safety and security when our own is so flawed? But even that, you know, I don't think that it is common knowledge that our, that the RCMP does, uh, is a part of, Uh, the foreign policy agenda in Canada, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that we operate on a global stage, why isn't that something that we all know? Why isn't that something that is interrogated um, as we go into an election after years, uh, after these years where the RCMP has seen so much heat? Why was the RCMP in Afghanistan?
1: I find myself like actually at a little bit at a loss for words with this because when I reflect on how big of an issue this was, um, in, in, like when we first went to war, when it's in the shadow of the attacks on the world trade center. And so this is like the, the cathartic action of the United States, the, the reaction to, um, to the, to the, the world trade, uh, the world trade center attacks, and the, the way that that narrative, like just, just underpin that, that period of time from 2001, 2002, 2003, just, just set up that modern era in which we live has been so profound. And and also for the left, right? Like the NDP, um, the, the, the biggest, and it's so hard because, you know, everybody is, is all they talk about now is Jack Layton canonizing Jack Layton. And, and, to, you know, today we're recording on the 10th anniversary of his death, but like, Let's not forget that there was a an anti-war flank in the NDP in in the early two thousands that came out of the, the 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 Canadian Peace Alliance and organizations like the Toronto Coalition to Stop the War and other anti-war organizations, and um, there was a huge battle within the NDP to try and elect someone who was critical of of the war, someone who instantly was like, you know, the NDP's position needs to be. Uh, critical of Afghanistan, we need to we need to bring the troops home instantly. And that candidate was Joe Comartin, um, who's a candidate who was a, a long-time uh, NDP MP from Windsor. And Jack Layton was the centrist candidate, right? He was not the left-wing candidate. And uh, and so a lot of really great anti-war activists mobilized around Joe Com- Comartin, and um, of course he lost. Jack won, um, and then uh, then then Layton, you know, with the influence of the anti-war movement within the NDP, took a, a stronger stance against Canada's role in Afghanistan, and then like earned this piece of shit moniker uh, that uh, politicians uh, gave to him, and then you know journalists repeated, which was Taliban Jack, right? And like. The the war in Afghanistan played such a critical war, um, a role in the 2000s that by the late 2000s, we had evidence that Canada was transferring uh, detainees into the hands of torture they, that, that we were directly delivering Afghan detainees in Afghanistan to authorities that would then torture them. That was a, a something that almost brought down the Harper government, but then didn't because Harper prorogued government. and It was like this major democratic flashpoint where like people across the political spectrum shocked that the, that the Harper government would just shut the government down rather than face the uh, face the criticism of whether or not Canadian soldiers were were, you know transferring people to be tortured this was the underpinnings of politics in Canada in in the 2000s it was so important and the fact that now there has not been I haven't seen a single article that has detailed all of this stuff all of the critical side of afghanistan all of the the fights that existed over calling for for can for canadian troops to come home before 2014 so mostly in that period like from the early 2000s to to the early uh, 2010s there's been fucking nothing nothing and then worse than that there has been no Um, like, you know, the the, the parties are just united, like, you know, from O'Toole to Singh, they've got the exact same position. Oh, we're not recognizing this, the Taliban as a government. They're not the government of Afghanistan. And it's like, sorry, the government of Afghanistan, like they fucking fled, (laughs) like they left the country and fucked everybody. So like, why do you even have to say if the Taliban is the government or not? Why not just be like, you know what, we're watching the situation closely and our biggest concern is making sure that we're evacuating people that want to come to Canada. Like, why is that not the line? No, no, instead the NDP, oh, the ta- we're, this is not the Af- Afghanistan government. The Afghanistan government was the government that the United States has been propping up and occupying for the last fucking 20 years. Like, give me a break. Give me a break.
0: Yeah, it, you know, I, I can't, I don't understand why I focus on, uh, humanity isn't uh, the obvious uh, default here <laughs> for anybody. I mean, if if again, as I said at the beginning, if that was the focus, then we we wouldn't see a, a story that says or a promise that says twenty thousand um, refugees will be resettled in Canada as a good news story. That would be, you know, like uh, how many people are in danger right now? More than twenty thousand. Um, And how many Mm -hmm. people did we directly put in danger? I I don't know. I don't know those numbers. um, Some journalists hopefully will figure it out for us this week. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, But, but, you know, that should be the central discussion um, that drives what's happening during the election when we're discussing Afghanistan. But also, I think uh, the other human point is, you know, how are we going to account for how our role propped up where Islamophobia has come to be today? You know, we've discussed previously on this podcast that the government has no plan to deal with uh, white supremacist uh, terror and that the government has uh, no plan to deal with um, Islamophobia. Now I know there was like some summit on Islamophobia. Was that a summit on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, or is there going to be a summit on Islamophobia? Something like there's summits. The government has summits planned. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. It, it it happened in July very quickly.
0: <laughs> summits, which I don't know. I mean. Uh, is, our student unions running the government now? <laughs> like, that's not, it sounds like something that I would have planned uh, as a 22-year-old at my students' union and not something that the, the, the not a plan that the government um, uh, comes up with to deal with very, very real dangers and threats to people's lives um, uh, domestically and abroad. Um, you know, what is it that the government is going to do to account for their role in propping up um, uh, the justification of Islamophobia that um, has deepened and worsened across these last two decades.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we've got four weeks left in this election. Afghanistan uh, is not going to be an issue that's resolved at the end of the Canadian election, that's obvious. Um, And so, Sandy, I want to ask you, um what you're going to be looking for from the parties and how they react to this but before you answer that i want to i want to just mention for me what i'm going to be looking at very closely is how canadian journalists are writing about what's happening and so far like the only journalist who's writing that i i like have any real time for is jeffrey york who is uh, based in south africa and is a is a global mail uh, bureau chief, but also like wrote and spent time uh, focusing a lot on Afghanistan. So I guess the Globe Mills had him now covering back this from South Africa, um, and trying to figure out like what is real. Like we've got a Taliban that is now back in power, that is saying that they're not going to destroy museum, uh, a, a museum. Uh, uh, artifacts or or art or this kind of thing that they're saying that 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 women can continue to go to work that that they're that they're reformed that they're moderate and that the, the leaders who are now saying that they're reformed and they're moderate here's all these reasons for why like this is what's happened for the last 20 years that is that is making the some of the leadership of this organization to be more moderate um now obviously like how much of that is taliban propaganda how much of that is reasonable because actually most afghans are like just hoping to not have a fucking war anymore um and and that seems to be some of the messages that i'm seeing from from afghan journalists um, and then how much of, of of absolving canada's role there is is embedded in the coverage that then goes back and consistently reminds everyone of the taliban of the 1990s um, and how we're just expecting it to just turn right back to that and it, you know it might turn right back to that it might not turn right back to that but it's it's it seems like you know, if you read the Toronto Star, it's just like impossible to figure out what the fuck is happening there. Um, And so, uh, you know, maybe in future episodes or whatever, if I get an answer to this or figure it out, can give, you know, maybe I can give people some some journalists to follow. But it just seems like it's going to be very different, difficult for us in the West to get a narrative that isn't like embedded within it pro-U.S. Uh, imperialism, pro-occupation, and then, of course, in Canada, all of that, but but maple-flavoured, right? So pro-Canada's role uh, in the occupation of Afghanistan. And so, Sandy, what are you going to be watching for um, how politicians react to this in the next couple of weeks?
0: Well, I'm going to be listening for, and I know that I'm probably not going to get, is uh, politicians who truly understand that um, the role that Canada played was a role that was um, both imperialistic and uh, was a a, an expansion of uh, Canada's role in colonization generally and I would love to hear um, uh, politicians demonstrate that they understand that through the way that they talk about um, the what is happening in Afghanistan right now not just as an opportunity to color themselves as like um, supportive of uh, people who are looking uh, to who are seeking asylum, which is uh, what the liberals have done so far but i I'd like to hear politicians wrestle with our um, our our legacy in Afghanistan and what that means for uh, for the way that Canada is going to be engaged um, in foreign policy moving forward. I mean I, I feel like Generally, we barely have discussions about foreign policy in Canada. It's just like stuff you yeah. hear randomly um, ab- about what's going on. Um, we, we have very um, unsophisticated discussions about foreign policy in Canada. But I would like to hear uh, politicians discuss Afghanistan critically, sure, but not just self-servingly in a way that demonstrates that they have a grasp on foreign policy and that demonstrates what principles they're going to be using um, to set their own foreign policy agenda in the coming months, years, decades, and so on. Do you think I can get that? Do you think that's (laughs) going to happen? Is is that about the questions that they're asked? Does it go Uh, beyond that? It should. No. Um, (laughs) Am I going to get what I want? No. Okay.
1: Thanks. <laughs> no, but I think you know it's so important that people have this background and 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 understanding because like this whole discussion requires a huge amount of forgetting, and in every single article and every single political intervention, there's forgetting that is happening. And I hope that people are actively resisting that that process of forgetting and then doing what they can to unforget, <laughs> unforget all of these issues.